you know, in that instance, his hemipene seemed unharmed. But that's why I think that they've got two penises is because these kind of accidents can happen and it's good to have a backup. You're listening to the Dude Nature Podcast. What's up, everyone? This is my interview with Tom Major, who is the co-host of the Herpetological Highlights podcast. So they cover creatures like lizards, frogs, snakes, toads, and a bunch of other stuff like that. It's a really, really awesome podcast. They have a super sick format where they dive into recent scientific studies in the field and they break it down. Both Tom and his co-host, Ben, they're both scientists. So they give a really, really cool take on the recent scientific papers that are published on these creatures. It's really tight. You should check it out. Again, it's the Herpetological Highlights podcast. But without further ado, here's my interview with Tom. The article the article you sent me is is crazy. Why does why does that snake like burrow into the, the frog and like eat it alive? Like why wouldn't it just kill the frog first? Uh, so that species of frog is the Asian spine toad, and they've actually got some pretty gnarly venom of their own. Uh, well, it's it's poison rather than venom, actually, to be uh, to be accurate. But yeah, they have this they have these bufotoxins, which are essentially um, toxins which interrupt your like sodium potassium pump, uh, and they just make you well when predators try and eat them, they basically just get really woozy, and it can lead to them becoming like paralyzed. So to avoid that. In, in absence of being immune to those toxins, the toads of the snakes have just decided the best way is to slice open the toads and eat their organs from the inside out, which is yeah, savage. Oh, do they? Oh, so they do it to get around the venom of the toad. They just slice, they yeah, just the, slice it open and get in there. Yeah, the toads themselves are like really poisonous. So without that kind of um, behavioral adaptation, they would just be eating poison. And we actually covered that paper on our podcast, and the. The details of it are so grisly, like the battle between the snake and the toad. Sometimes it lasts for hours with the toad oh crawling my... off and trying to find refuge. And then the snake eventually seeking it back out and oh hunting it down. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's really awful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. It's a crazy adaptation to get around that. Dude, like, and then I was, I was looking at your, um, I was looking at your, your PhD snake. So you're studying the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I'm a butcher of pronunciation. The uh, Ascalapian snake? Just say it, dude. What's it called? Escalapian. Escalapian Oh, my God. Snake. I was, yeah, I was honestly, closer than I thought. you actually pretty good, mate. Like, a lot of people call it um, Asclepian snake or Escapian snake because they've escaped and they've subsequently started a population breeding in the wild. Yeah, yeah. I honestly think if I could do one thing, if I could change one thing through the course of my PhD, it would probably give that snake a rebrand and give it a more catchy name <laughs> because they are pretty cool animals. They deserve a slightly better name, in my opinion. Yeah, why'd you pick that as your PhD? Well, I initially wanted to study adders, which are our, like venomous snake native to the UK. They're like these tiny little vipers that are really cool. Um, but just getting funding for that was really hard. And the supervisor I wanted to work with had this other project going. Essentially, in the 1960s, there's a zoo called the Welsh Mountain Zoo. Mm-hmm. And they had, well, the guy who started the zoo actually used to import a lot of reptiles and he would sell reptiles and also obviously have reptiles on display in his zoo and at some point along the line in the 19 late 50s early 60s maybe into the 70s some of these snakes escaped the story goes it might even have just been one female with eggs got out into the wild 
and just yeah. one snake just one snake escaped possibly yeah i mean that's crazy it is it's somewhat feasible that they could do that because inbreeding doesn't have quite such dramatic effects on snakes quite so quickly they can breed with their brothers and sisters and cousins for some period of time before there'll be obvious like bad effects but uh yeah the snakes got out and then at one some point after a few years he was just walking along in the zoo the director and saw this baby snake on the floor didn't recognize it consulted his reptile book and realized damn this is one of the snakes which i've been importing and it's breeding in the wild and they've been breeding in the wild ever since so 60 years going strong holy that's crazy and now they're just now they're just everywhere how um how how like effective have they been in the environment once they got out well, I think their their kind of expansion has been quite modest, it's fair to say. Mm -hmm. um, they've only got a couple of kilometers squared as their range, but they've definitely been breeding successfully. And I've been studying them myself for three seasons. And every year we found tons and tons of babies. Um, they're definitely doing reasonably well. But the thing is, they are, they're native to Europe. So they've got a pretty wide range from like you know, uh, Germany, Italy, all the way east to like Iran. So they're from quite a wide variety of environments anyway. Generally speaking, it's warmer than here. This is the northernmost part of their range because they're actually in Wales, which is, you know, famously cold and wet and especially North Wales. Uh, but yeah, no, they seem to be, uh, they seem to be doing, you know, pretty well and surviving despite the circumstances. Yeah. So you're, so you, are you studying like how they went to like a foreign environment and ended up surviving so well? Yeah, that's kind of the long and short of it. Like, how is it that they're surviving in this environment? And there's going to be various things that we're going to study. So we're going to do some radio telemetry. So with that, we're going to be actually tracking down the snakes every day, um, trying to see what they do, uh, really getting an idea of like their home range and their habitat that they use and all that kind of stuff. Dude, I got to ask, I got to ask you something being from Wales. Is it, yeah. is it when, so when you talk to Americans, I know this is a really weird question. So just like, when you talk to Americans, like, do we have an accent? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm actually not from Wales. Uh, I'm from England, which is, you know, I mean, we're, we're neighbors. We share a huge border with Wales. I moved here just for the PhD. This is where the snakes were, so I moved okay. here. But, yeah, totally. Like, you guys <laughs> you guys have got an accent. Your accent's great. Really? So do you guys, like, when you guys are with your friends, do you guys, Im like, sometimes imitate American accents? Um... I would say it has happened. I wouldn't say it necessarily happens that frequently, but yeah, like we we would, uh, yeah, we take the we you know we take the mick out of some aspects of American culture. You know, <laughs> it's a, uh, I don't know, it's quite an easy country. I'm sure you're aware to poke fun at. We only really get really the worst easy of country it coming over in the news. So yeah, we that's, do. Yeah, that's great, dude. For like, um, for like our drinking games, like when we're playing a drinking game, like like unanimous, like across the country. It's like sometimes there'll be a rule where you have to try and speak in an English accent for like the entire the entire rest of the drinking game. And I just feel oh, yeah. like I feel like you guys would get it would be so funny for you guys to see like a bunch of Americans trying to speak in your accent. Yeah, I mean, it's quite I, I it seems like it's an accent which Americans maybe struggle with a little bit. I'm, I seldom hear a good accent. You hear the kind of like exaggerated uh sort of cockney english accent the sort of london style more than anything else but yeah but yeah certainly to me you guys have got an accent and actually like i have to say i listened to your podcast and one of the things i enjoyed about it was your guys's your guys's voices what's the snake that you think about the most that you think is the coolest <laughs> snake i think about lasting at night uh <laughs> it's probably i've there's a snake called uh, an eyelash palm pit viper which is quite actually quite funny if you 
if another herpetologist were to ask me what my favorite snake was and I was to say eyelash palm pit viper, you quite often get a reaction like, oh, yeah, 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 classic, classic, boring, because <laughs> everyone thinks they're cool because they are wicked. They are like bright yellow, right? They're venomous, uh-huh. the vipers, pretty cool. Anyway, and uh, yeah, they've got these like little eyelash that they're obviously scales, not eyelashes, but over their eyes. And so they've just got this attitude. And uh, yeah, they're, they're like literally like neon yellow. And uh, yeah, they're from Costa Rica. And for that reason, I've always wanted to go to Costa Rica. Yeah. Why are they neon? Ye- why are they neon yellow? Doesn't that, isn't that like against I, camouflage? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess... I'm not sure. There's some, because there's another species of snake. Well, there's a few species of snake actually that have like bright yellow babies that subsequently turn a different color as they get older. And some people think that actually if you're small being bright yellow in a forest, you might stand out. You might not stand out because there's a lot of, you know, bright greens and bright yellows in the foliage. Yeah. But yeah, to me, they do stand out. And, And what's interesting about them is they actually come in lots of different colors. They're not all bright yellow. So some are bright yellow, but then equally some are brown and some are green. So yeah, I'm not quite sure as to why they're that color. It's wild, though. So some some snakes, like, the babies will actually change. They'll change colors. Like, they'll be one color, and then they'll change. Yeah, yeah. It's actually quite common in snakes. Um, they call it um, ontogenetic shift, which is just, you know, changes as they get older. And it actually, even my study species, the Escalapian snake, has a kind of moderate change where, where their babies are quite heavily patterned. They've got, like, a kind of like a lattice work effect on the back. Um, and lots of white flecks, and then they have like a bright yellow neck collar. And as they mm-hmm. get older, all of that disappears, and they just turn plain brown on top and plain yellow underneath. And um, with them, I think their coloration actually does serve a purpose. Um, they have this like head flattening behavior, which kind of exemplifies the yellow. So maybe it's kind of a mm-hmm. shock tactic, uh, you know, expose that yellow, give the predator a flash, and maybe that will confuse them. But yeah, it's it's quite common in snakes that they change color from uh, from juvenile to adult. That's so cool. What what are some some other like adaptations that a snake has that we wouldn't necessarily read about that people like wouldn't necessarily know? Well, I always quite like sea snakes because um, they're a group of snakes which is entirely aquatic, which is pretty cool anyway. And then add to that, they've got some of the most potent venoms in the animal kingdom. And the reason for that is because they catch fish. And if you're in an underwater situation, you know it's like the most ultimate 3d environment imaginable and you're trying to catch a fish if you don't bite latch on and kill that fish pretty much instantaneously that thing's just going to disappear so they've got extremely potent venom add to that because they never come ashore or they very very seldomly come ashore but most species never come ashore uh they have to shed their skin in the water so most snakes when they go to shed their skin they actually will like find a rock or a stick or anything hard and they'll push their face against it and that will kind of get the ball rolling with the shed skin and the whole skin comes off backwards along the body like a sock coming off of a foot right (laughs) obviously at sea there's nothing to rub on okay they might find like a bit of flotsam or something and then they've got something but for the most part it's just the open ocean right so what they'll do is they'll actually tie themselves into a knot and use the force of their own body to force the skin off their head to like rub the knot like down their head that's it. Yeah, yeah. So they actually <laughs> so push their tight. head through their own coil as a means of getting their skin off, which is crazy. And if you see a video of that, it's wild. Um, so yeah, I think sea snakes—they're just crazy. And also, they're another thing which comes in bright yellow, which I really like. So, yeah. <laughs> Aren't they super venomous, the sea snakes? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're really venomous, but they've—they've they've got this weird combination of extremely venomous and also extremely docile because. 
for whatever reason, they don't really seem to perceive human beings as a threat. So if you are on a boat and go past the sea snake, the kind of accepted knowledge, not that I'd recommend anyone does this. I probably wouldn't do it myself. But yeah, supposedly most of the time you can just pick them up and they're just super chill straight out of the water. They just, you know, they won't bite. They're just Wait, really laid pick, back. You can pick them up? Yeah, yeah. They don't seem to mind it, which is very odd. Most venomous snakes, you know, if you try and pick them up, by and large, they're going to try and bite you. What What's up? So Okay, so like what's up when I was reading, what's up with like the venom... So like this, sometimes like there were, I was just reading about scorpions actually, and how like some scorpions will give like a warning sting before like they give like a big sting. And it was like, so what's up with like the trying to conserve, conserve venom? Like it, does it take a while to build up venom, venom back up in, in these species? Like after they sting something or bite something? Yeah, it would. So the venom gland is just like in the mouth. It's kind of like a salivary gland. And um, the force of the bite will kind of push the venom down. Uh, there's like a groove in the fang and it, it comes in. So yeah, that venom is a finite resource. And a lot of people think that um, snakes are quite hesitant to use their venom. Um, and there's been other suggestions that they can meter the amount of venom that they actually give in a bite, depending on the circumstance. But the evidence for that is quite poor. So it's something that we actually aren't really that sure about. There's also a suggestion that um, baby snakes are either much more venomous or less venomous, depending on who you ask. And the reason for that is some people think, okay, the the baby snake, it hasn't kind of developed the um, kind of tactile ability to control the amount of venom it delivers in a bite, whereas an adult has the kind of ability to be a little bit more suppressed with its venom delivery. However, I've not really seen any convincing evidence for that. And actually, I think the likelihood is a bite from a baby snake is probably going to be less severe because simply because they have less venom to, to deliver because their apparatus is smaller. Dude, what do you do if you're bit by a snake, like a venomous snake? So the best thing to do is try and stay calm, even though it's obviously very difficult. Um, generally speaking, I mean, these days people are hesitant to advise putting tourniquets and stuff like that on because you can do more damage, especially if you don't know what kind of snake it is because the treatment varies depending on the type of venom you've been envenomated with but generally speaking stay calm elevate the part of the body that's um been bitten and get straight to hospital as soon as you can yeah dude um it's it's crazy it's crazy like i was reading about the the scorpion venom. we just did like an episode on venom so i was I, i was reading the the scorpion venom and how like it goes in and it actually um it like it blocks the the pathways for or or sorry opens the pathways for different pain receptors and that's why you feel so much pain um is it this is it like the same way with snake venom or does it act like pretty differently so i must admit i'm no expert in snake venoms um my supervisor actually is so i'm always hesitant to butcher venom stuff (laughs) but uh yeah so i don't know that there's any snake venoms which elicit that kind of extreme pain like scorpion venoms do. But there was a paper that came out recently actually published by um, my boss and some of their colleagues um, about defensive venom use in spitting cobras. And the kind of crux of that paper was that the spitting actually co-evolved with humans, or at least that's kind of a a working theory. That's super cool. Yeah. So like prior to... Uh, you know, well, not not even hum- not even necessarily humans, but like you know, bipedal apes. Prior to bipedal apes, this uh, 
um, spitting of venom, which is actually quite simple. They've got like a normally the the fangs are kind of grooved at the back, and the venom just runs down the back of the fang and into the the wound the fangs have caused. But in spitting cobras, um, there's actually a hole at the front of the fang that allows the venom to be spat forwards, and so that's spitting. kind of the only yeah. So it, it basically the pressure just forces it straight out of the front so they open their mouths and it shoots and they can shoot it really accurately and it always goes for the eyes there's loads of videos on youtube where people have got like a fake sort of face oh. and they're holding it up to the snake and the accuracy, yeah the accuracy is wild they'll get you in the face like you know eight times out of ten um so yeah there is there is that there is a kind of defensive use of venom but in terms of just agonizing pain i think generally speaking the venom from snakes is more of a predatory thing rather than a defensive thing so yeah i I mean that's not to say that lots of snake bites aren't painful and it depends it depends a little bit on the type of venom you've got different types which have different effects you know you've got your neurotoxins which affect your nervous system hematoxins which are affecting your blood uh, and they're supposed to be quite painful bites and the cytotoxins just dissolve tissue which is obviously very painful as well but the primary function of snake venoms isn't pain um it's actually just predation i see i see that i see that difference from scorpions scorpions are trying to defend themselves so they're just going to like inflict pain get out of there and well, well the snakes are trying to actually eat the thing yeah, yeah. I don't know much about scorpions, but that sounds horrible that the uh, <laughs> they can just inflict that Dude, much pain. But yeah, it's sorry, go on. Have have you seen there's just like this there, there's these this really weird corner of YouTube, I'm sure you've seen, where like people will just get bit by things. Bit and yeah. stung by things for, for money. <laughs> Who's that guy? Coyote, is it? Coyote something? Uh, he dude, loves getting bit myself. Um I know who you're talking. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, he's crazy, that guy. But he's also, you know, he's like one of the most popular people on YouTube. It's ridiculous. People want to see that. He's like one of the most popular people. And then like he's he's created the niche, basically. So after him, there's now like this like waterfall effect of just like 100 people that are trying to be him. So they're just like anything, you know, hornet wasp, like hornet wasp or just like snake it's it's such a it's dude it's such a funny corner of the internet it's like i'm gonna get paid to get bitten by <laughs> bitten by really painful insects and animals yeah i mean it's just like it's such a fundamental curiosity of ours isn't it you're just like everyone knows you know it's like so ingrained in us to sort of worry about snakes or be fearful of snakes and all these other animals so it's only natural you're kind of curious to see what will actually happen if you do get stung by these creatures <laughs> i know dude so the paper that you're um that your supervisor wrote with the uh, the cobra spitting with coevolution with humans is he is he saying that it evolved for that spitting literally to defend itself from humans to spit in the eyes? Yeah, they couldn't say it concretely, but basically, it's one of those ones where there's like a lot of circumstantial evidence. So the spitting evolved independently three times. I'm just thinking back to reading it. It evolved independently three times. There's like three groups of. Uh, sort of cobra-like snakes that can spit two or two groups of cobras you've got asian spitting cobras and african spitting cobras and then you've also got this uh, species of snake called the ring cows which is uh this crazy like banded sometimes they're black and white sometimes they're orange but it's another snake which is closely related to cobras but it's not 
a true cobra. It's not in the genus Naya. And they all developed spitting at different times. But the one thing which was in common was that it was around the time that hominins or bipedal apes first appeared on the scene in that area. So there's this circumstantial evidence. And to be honest, as soon as I read that, I just hooked onto it because I think it's great. I love, yeah. I love the idea. I just love the idea. Anything that kind of pits humans in the same sphere as animals, because everyone always thinks, everyone you talk to is like, doesn't really consider human beings to be animals but when you see that actually you know we're in there affecting evolution of other creatures and vice versa i think it's fascinating yeah i I do too i just dude i just read have you heard of the book uh like darwin comes to town no i haven't it's it's by it's by um a dutch guy and i i read it and um he was he was talking about an example of peppered moth evolution going from white wings to black wings and it's crazy with the like with the environmental pressure that humans can put on because Darwin thought that evolution took like thousands to, to, you know, maybe longer years. But what we're seeing now is that human induced evolution species can evolve very, very quickly, much, oh, much quicker yeah. than that, which is really, really crazy. Yeah, I'm like even in. Yeah, you know, growing up, you just think evolution, as you say, is spanning crazy timescales but we've covered a few papers on our podcast where there's these species of lizards if i remember correctly there are no lizards and there was a massive hurricane on the island that these lizards were on and they wanted to see whether or not the lizards had changed in terms of their like morphology in terms of their physical features before and after this hurricane had come and sure enough um they they did some really funny experiments as well where they had a leaf blower and they put the lizard on a stick and then they blew the leaf blower on it. So they were kind of testing also whether or not these adaptations were actually working, these like longer fingers. And they were, they were better at basically hanging on in wind after the hurricane had come through than they were before the hurricane came. What? So it's pretty much just, yeah, it's a case of a uh, case of evolution on the fly, which is really awesome. And, you know, that was over the course of, you know, 30 years or something like that they'd evolved whereas yeah it's wild like you say you think of it as you think of it in terms of hundreds and thousands of years but yeah they could animals can evolve crazy quickly if the conditions are right and if they have that kind of adaptive potential within their genes they can just go for it dude it makes me think of whenever i read like about that stuff how quickly things can evolve i think about humans like have we like evolved some, somewhat from what we were to like what we are now? That's what I like would love. I would love to read a paper on that. You know, like where have we just gotten softer and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I don't know. I mean, for us, uh, at least, I don't know. I don't see that many selection pressures acting on people around here. It seems like you can pretty much survive regardless Using a of computer, how you carry on. Finger speed. Finger speed. To yeah, type. exactly. Yeah. The words, <laughs> you have the to be typing has gotten better. <laughs> yeah you have to be pretty unlucky to get taken out of the gene pool these days but yeah i'm sure we are changing in certain ways i read this thing once that there was this theory that human beings were going to evolve into two separate species a species of giant people and a species of tiny people but um yeah. i don't know Why? what the actual evidential basis for that is is that because like like i myself in short is that because short people like just they keep mating with short people and tall people keep mating with tall people and we just kind of like we kind of go we zag <laughs> I assume so. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the basis for that was, but yeah. I mean, it's I guess it's kind of feasible. Yeah. I'm kind of into that theory to be honest. Because Just, yeah. Create I was, a nice race of tiny people would be yeah, great. I get it though cuz like so like my dad was like 5'10", but I'm like I'm tiny. I'm like 5'5". Five five. And so, you know, I could I can't mate. I wasn't going to be able to mate with anyone that was like, you know, like 5'5 five five or above. 
And so, like, you know, so I go for the smaller girl, and then, like, you know, we keep going. I'm into that paper. <laughs> I don't even know if it's a paper or whether it's just, like, something which somebody said to me once. But, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's it's quite a funny idea. You do occasionally see some pretty hilariously mismatched couples. So maybe they're going to be enough to kind of keep us from separating into two species. Uh, you, <laughs> the talls and the smalls. You know, the, yeah, the talls and the smalls. But, yeah, they've got a long way to go. Um, dude, what is, what's your favorite part about snakes that you like, don't really get to talk about and you wish, you wish you could? Oh, don't know. I talk about most aspects of snakes. Um, uh, do you know that snakes have two penises? Oh, this is great. No, I didn't know this. <laughs> okay, Tell me about so... the two penises of the snake. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, this is something which people seem to love. Yeah. Like they're called hemipenes and yeah, there's two, there's one each side. And obviously snakes have a cloaca like birds. So it's like one hole does everything. So these hemipenes come out of this hole when the time is right. But the basic idea is that, um, obviously snake mating, and I've actually had the privilege of seeing some snakes mate in the wild and it's, it's not exactly a gentle affair. And that's not to say that, uh, well, I would say that all of the parties involved were actually being pretty rough. But one of the things I saw that shocked me was, and this was in with some tiny green pit vipers in Thailand. And uh, the female, there was essentially two males hanging around this female. One male was mating with the female. And then at some point, this other male comes in and he obviously wants a piece of the action. That's why he's there. And he starts sure. to try and fight this other male. And then the female witnessing this battle going on you know, involving somebody who's attached to her, her instinct is to just climb up the tree a little bit. And obviously the male is preoccupied with the new male who he's like fighting. And he ends up getting dragged up the tree by his hemipene. And this thing stretched like you would not believe it was oh, disgusting. It was like so thin and stretched God. out. It was like an elastic band stretched the max. And I was just wincing watching it. But, you know, in that instance, his hemipene seemed unharmed. But that's why I think that they've got two penises is because these kind of accidents can happen. And it's good to have a backup. Literally have two penises for just the, just the strength. Just the thickness of the hemi No, oh, yeah, no, I should have explained. They only use one at a time. So they use one at a time. Uh, oh, so just... one will be out and the other one will be in. And so I think the one, the second one's possibly depending on which side they want to come out. I don't know whether or not they, I've actually never read anything about whether or not they preferentially use one or the other. I would imagine it's probably, you know, down to personal preference for that individual snake, perhaps, you know, that prefers the right one over the left one. But yeah, the general idea is that they'll use one and then they've got one in reserve should the, should the time or need arise. <laughs> That's insane. Do do most of them have two penises? The hemipene? As far as I know, all snakes have that. <laughs> um, I've never read anything otherwise. And actually, the hemipenes are quite interesting. They're they're really weird. Um, you know, they're covered in like hooks and spurs, and they're really grotesque to look at. And they they can inflate. Um, yeah, they're quite shocking. You know, they don't look like the phallus we're accustomed to by any stretch. They're like, you know, really yeah. grotesque, you know, lumpy things. And actually, the hemipene of various reptiles is actually used as a really good way of identifying which species they belong to because these hooks and protrusions are so nuanced and unique to species. You can actually yeah. tell. You see in the species description, if a new species of chameleon, for example, is described quite a lot, quite a lot of the time, they'll have an image of the hemipene, a drawing of the hemipene because it's so unique. How do they how do they choose which hemipene to use? Like how do they close off the channel to the other one? Or do they not close it off? I have no idea. I assume 
I assume they pick. I don't know whether that's un. I mean, it must be under some kind of conscious control. But yeah, that's yeah. the kind of nuance in hemipenes, which I just don't know whether that research has even been done. <laughs> that's the research I'm going to do, baby. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> let's get to the bottom of this. Let's get, let's get to the yeah. bottom of this, dude. Um, I, I, I'm assuming. I got a question for you. No idea how this is going to go, but I'm assuming that you have you read Harry Potter? No, of Harry Potter, seen the movies? Oh yes. Okay, dude. If you could speak parcel tongue. What is the one question you would ask a snake? What a question. That's such a good question. <laughs> oh, what would you ask a snake? Oh. I just try and get a vibe of what it's like to be a snake. Like how much thought is going on? Because yeah, I think people underestimate some of the time. And I think also people anthropomorphize and overestimate the kind of emotional capabilities of animals. So I just would love to get a handle on like, in an average second, what level of conscious thought is going on in that head? Is it all just pure instincts or are they like planning and scheming for future operations? That's right. not a very specific question I'd ask. No, I, if I, I totally had, get it. Yeah, like, I don't know. I'm just trying to get a handle on... Because people often think that snakes are idiots, right? Because they're this kind of... I mean, if you ever look a snake in the face, it's easy to think that because they're this like vacant, emotionless creature, right? They don't even yeah. blink. So quite hard to empathize with, which I think is why a lot of people have a problem with them. So yeah, if I could just... Just be like, have you got plans for later on? <laughs> uh, absolutely. So it's basically, it's it's like the robot test almost. It's like sometimes like the the reptiles or cold blooded animals like snakes, they can seem like a like a robot that they just like barely operate and they're just like so cold. It's just like nothing there. So basically, it's like, are you really cold or do you do you have some thoughts besides yeah. just re responding to stimuli? Yeah, and you know, like. When you follow snakes for long enough, you kind of learn their habits. That's why I'm really excited about the radio telemetry part of our work, just to see what they get up to. And, you know, they're, you know, they're going back to the same places to hibernate. They're going back to the same places to, to eat. They know where good spots to bask are. They know where to get water. So, you know, that kind of builds on this creature, which has, you know, kind of complicated habits and some degree of idea about what's going to happen at different times of the year and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, just to get a handle on their actual intelligence, because yeah it's it's difficult to you don't see many papers come out about snake cognition it's i think it's quite a difficult thing to study you see a, a bit more in lizards um we were actually talking about this recently uh me and me and ben who, who i do the podcast with lizards are a little bit easier to do these things with because food rewards are a little bit more relevant to a lizard a lizard can eat something and then next day eat something else whereas if you give a snake a food reward the snake's going to be chilling for like two weeks three weeks it's not going to be you know ready to go again in this yeah, task yeah. so yeah, snake cognition is something we don't really know a huge amount about. So I think it'd be great to find out more. Dude, um, thanks so much for coming on. I got th I got three last questions for you. Um, this is super interesting. Thank you. Um, no, thanks for having me. Bo book recommendation. First question: book recommendation. A book recommendation Dude, about snakes any, can specifically be, can be anything. Can be nonfiction, fiction, any book. I'm actually reading a book at the minute. It's fiction. And it, you, you mentioned Harry Potter. It's kind of a fantasy like Harry Potter. It's yeah, called yeah. Uh, The Name of the Wind. Okay, cool. And I can't remember the author's name. I can never remember author names of anything, but it's pretty good. I'd say it's a, it's an exciting fantasy. It's kind of a, about this guy who ends up going to wizard school. So it's kind of broadly similar to Harry Potter in that vein. But, you know, and he's actually also got no parents. So it's quite a lot of Harry Potter vibes coming through. But, yeah, <laughs> it's decent. Cool, dude. Um, spirit animal. What's your spirit animal? 
Hmm. Spirit animal. When I was at school, my friends used to say I was like a mole, but I never really got that. <laughs> I kind of respect moles because, you know, they're subterranean and they're very velvety and soft. So I'm going to go for a mole because, you know, they keep themselves to themselves. They're just, you know, they're underground doing good work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I like that one. Um, favorite animated movie villain? Probably Giovanni. Giovanni from? Not necessarily movie. <laughs> Pokemon. Oh, my God. That's great. That's a great answer. Pokemon got in here. <laughs> I was hoping Pokemon yeah. would one day find its way into the podcast. Mate, I, I honestly credit Pokemon with my ability to remember the names of animals. For sure. For sure. Did you honestly, play which ver did you play the, the Game Boy version? Played Game Boy version. Recently, uh me and my housemate played uh Pokemon Let's Go Eevee. We did a one of those um what do you call it? The runs where if your Pokemon dies, you don't get to keep it anymore. You have to put it in the box. So you've got to keep your Pokemon alive for the whole game. What's that called? It's like a Naz Nazgul, something like that. It's like a special sort of extra hard mode for Pokemon, which is good because <laughs> Pokemon Let's Go is a game for children. And we tried to make it a game for adults. And it's also <laughs> good because you, you can play it co-op. So you each have one of the oh, little Switch yeah. controllers and you each have a character you can run around with. And then when the battles come along, you can each go. So it's, yeah, I, it's good. I, I, I just, yeah, Pokemon's wicked. Dude, that's a good point about developing like a uh, biological memory. It's like because I remember playing on the Game Boy, and it's like you end up memorizing like two hundred species, and you're, and yeah, you're just exactly. like, oh no, that species sucks. Like that's a water species. I that's so funny. Like how did that affect yeah. your brain with memorizing stuff? That's great. I really, yeah. I mean, obviously, I have no evidence, but <laughs> I, I I I do suspect it had an impact. You know, like just that obsession with the pokedex and those little facts about them and everything it just yeah it really speaks to the biologist mindset i think <laughs> that's that's awesome dude where can people find you so uh yeah me personally i'm um i'm on twitter uh at thomas underscore major and then i mean i yeah find our podcasts we we do a podcast about snakes and reptiles herpetological highlights and uh that's on all social medias just search herpetological highlights which is Really hard word to spell, so good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, listen. Go listen to Herbertological Highlights. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. It's an awesome podcast. I love how what you guys do, too, where you just you take a scientific study, and then you break it down, and it's really focused around that. Um, your podcast rocks, so you guys go go give it a listen. Thank you, um, and yeah, same to you. Your podcast is great, and I think it's uh, it's been really fun coming on, so thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Cheers, Noah. Peace, dude. Hey, so how cool was Tom? And he answered my accent question and talked about hemi penises with snakes. That was that, that was that was really dope. Tom, thanks again for coming on. Um, guys, you can find Tom and Ben at the Herbertological Highlights podcast. You can find us on Instagram at dude underscore nature or www.dudenature.com or find us as well wherever you get podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. You guys take care.